So last week I began speaking about what's called the three characteristics of experience. The three characteristics that are common to all experiences. That being of anicca, impermanence, dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of experience, and anatta, the impersonal or insubstantial nature of experience. Last week I spoke about anicca, and in doing so I didn't really elaborate much on the three characteristics themselves in general. Uh, And so tonight I'd just like to spend a little bit of time in the beginning speaking about this, because these three characteristics are so relevant to the work that we're doing here. The work that we're doing here is really to enable wisdom or clear seeing to come forth. And that in our practice, in bringing mindfulness to our experience, and just allowing the mind to touch to no experience, just as it is, we begin to see that the way we have been seeing things is not the truth of the way things are. That we begin to see that there is this tendency, this compulsion to look for happiness in experience that is always changing, continually changing. And as we sit here and we practice and we see something arising in the mind, whether it's the breath, a thought, emotion, we also see it disappearing. And we begin to see that there's nothing really lasting. And what we might recognize is that in our lives, we have been thinking that if we get the right experience, if we're in touch with something that is pleasant, peaceful, easeful, that this is where we will find happiness. But we begin to see it's all changing. We begin to see that, um, I'll speak more about tonight, the unsatisfactory nature because things are continually changing. And we also begin to see that Things are interconnected in that there's nothing that we can really call self that is this kind of solid, separate self that is unchanging. That all of the things that we normally relate to as being self are changing. And so as we practice, we have moments where the mind sees clearly some of these aspects some of these characteristics. And it can happen that as we practice, it may be that we go through a phase where there's a scene of impermanence, and everything in our experience is just arising and passing. 
And there's the seeing of this. Or we may have a retreat that sometimes gets called the dukkha retreat. And we're really in touch with the unsatisfactory nature of experience. Know that maybe there's a lot of unpleasant mind states. Maybe there is just a sense of there being nothing that's satisfying. Or it might be that we have a retreat where you know, there, there just isn't this sense of I, me, or mine. We just keep seeing conditions playing out and not referring back to I, me, or mine. So, you know, at, at times in practice, one of these characteristics becomes highlighted. But they want, the understanding of one leads into the understanding of the other two because they're really interrelated. They're closely connected. And yet, each one of these can be a gateway to liberation. The understanding deeply these characteristics is what helps to uproot greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. It's what helps us to be able to see things as they are because we aren't trying to grasp onto, cling to. We aren't identifying with these experiences. So last week I spoke about impermanence, you know, a simple fact of life, and yet when we deeply understand it, it changes the very way that we live our life. Because we no longer are looking for happiness in these experiences that by their very nature are conditioned to change. The understanding of impermanence leads us into the understanding of dukkha, or the unsatisfactory nature of experience. We often find that the word dukkha itself gets translated as suffering. And This is not a complete understanding of the word. And because it's not complete, it can mean that in our own practice, when we hear it translated as suffering, we think that it's really not relevant. And yet, the teachings of dukkha are a cornerstone of what the Buddha taught. he, you know, he at one point said, I teach one thing, one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the end of dukkha. And the Buddha was a very practical teacher. He taught what is relevant to our lives. So there's something very important 
in what he was pointing to when he used the word dukkha. And so it warrants looking at the word itself. Because we do need to be able to see how it relates to our experience. We find the importance emphasized in just the Four Noble Truths, um, the truth of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, and the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. And you know, we often hear that related to as uh, the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path leading to the end of suffering. But tonight, for a period of time, just looking at how we might broaden our own understanding of dukkha so that we can recognize it in our experience. One of the things that happens when we hear it translated as suffering is that in our lives the conditions may be relatively good. That we know there are people in worse circumstances than what we are right now. We know there are people that are uncertain where their next meal will come from. We know there are people that live in the midst of war that there are people that have strong tendencies of violence. And we can see that that is suffering, but we don't see what's happening in our own life as being suffering. Dukkha is much more pervasive than what we commonly think of as suffering. when we speak about dukkha as being the unsatisfactory nature, it might be a little bit more inclusive because as we start paying attention to the changing nature of experience, we begin to see, oh yeah, there isn't anything that's deeply satisfying in these changing experiences. And yet, unsatisfactory nature. That might not be an expression we readily relate to in our lives. Know that it's not common in our daily life that we would tell somebody that, oh, things are unsatisfactory in their nature. Know that it's not an expression that somebody outside of Buddhism might have any understanding. You know, would probably really question you if you said that. So looking at the word dukkha itself, as it comes from the Pali word, the first part of the word is du, and it means bad, low, difficult, or vulgar. And ka means empty or hollow. The empty or hollow is uh, like the, an axle that has a hole in the, in the center. And an image that I found a little bit helpful was the image of an axle 
not fitting properly into its whole. And I think that was something I related to a lot in my life, you know, where there's just the sense that things don't quite fit together. And so there's a bit of a rub. There's friction. There's, um, you know, a suggestion of disharmony, tension. And there is this, at times, visceral sense of dukkha as being friction, as being not satisfying, tense. Um, Another definition is that which is hard to bear or incapable of satisfying. That which is hard to bear. If we look in our lives, if we look closely, we will see there are many moments when the mind says, I can't bear it. But in our lives, we often don't look closely. We get close to anything like that, and we simply do something else. We turn away. We keep ourselves distracted. We keep ourselves on the move. And so one of the things about the not seeing of dukkha is that we don't look closely enough and don't even know that there is this level of dis-ease. But it's interesting when we start to sit and we, if we're given the instruction just to be present, it's not easy. Look at the habits that are there that keep propelling the mind out of the moment, that don't allow the mind to settle with this experience. There's this level of dis-ease. And so there's this agitation Another uh, description of dukkha is that which is bad because it's empty, insubstantial, unsatisfactory, or illusory. One of the things that I've seen in my own practice is that, you know, teachers will always offer different translations of dukkha. And I think that's really helpful. And it's to keep looking at it, to keep opening up. What is the meaning of dukkha? But as we practice, we really come to know it in a different way than when we first came to practice. Now, I remember uh, one of my first retreats, or the, the first few retreats, and going to a Dharma talk. And there would be all this talk about suffering. And I remember going home and saying to my friends, you know, Buddhists really have this thing about suffering. That's all they really talk about. And that then, you know, as I sat, as I paid attention to what was happening in my own experience, there was really the seeing of these habits that are painful in themselves. There was the seeing of this level of distress that was there. There was not finding anything satisfactory. 
Uh, you know, and at one point thinking, well, it's the problem of the practice. It's not the right practice. You know, maybe if I did something else, you know, I'd find you know better experience. But then just seeing, wow, this is the state of affairs in my mind. You know, and it caused me to look deeper. It caused me to, you know, oh, stop and look at what was happening. Before that, I'd been much more into the celebration of life, you know, the joy of life. And, you know, but when that celebration, that joy is based on delusion, it doesn't last. In helping to broaden the understanding of dukkha, I'd like to speak about three types of dukkha. And the first is the unpleasant sensations of body and mind. And that is what we do commonly think of as suffering. You know that um, in our lives, in practice, at times there are strong states of fear, that judging mind, aversion, anger, hatred, that there are strong physical experiences that are painful, unpleasant. You know, having this body and all of the changes that it goes through, there can be a lot of unpleasant experience in this. And so there can be a level of unsatisfactoriness to this. We can, we can quite easily see how this is not satisfactory. And then there is the level of dukkha that is due to impermanence, due to things continually changing. The seeing of this is really important because there has been so many experiences in life that we think are happiness, but they are conditioned. And our practice is a really good place to look at conditioned happiness. Because it can happen at times, you know, when concentration is strong, deep, it's peaceful, tranquil. There can come a great joy, but then it changes. And so, you know, we begin to see that even beautiful states of mind that arise due to meditation are not places of lasting happiness. That there is something unsatisfactory in this. But we have to really deeply understand this. And it will happen that we hit times where concentration is good, tranquility is strong, and we will get seduced by it. You know, that sense of, I've got it now. But inevitably we see this is conditioned. This is subject to change. And this will actually allow for deepening concentration because then we're no longer clinging to it. Seeing how the moments of happiness in life are a a form of dukkha 
is harder to see. And I think this is where the Buddhist teachings get the, the, the sense of being pessimistic teachings. Because, you know, many times in life, we point to even little happinesses, and they're needed. You know, they help. Uh, but we just need to know them for what they are. Otherwise, we keep trying to make conditions be right. Otherwise, we're continually scrambling to get all of those conditions in place so we will be happy. And I've watched myself do that over and over again in my practice. If I get everything just right, then the mind will be at peace, at ease. And that desire in itself is dukkha. So there needs to be a wisdom when we experience joy, when we experience happiness. Because if we start cutting off from it, that's not going to be helpful. But we just need to know or see that inherent with yeah, it's wonderful, it's here, and boom, in the next minute it may be going, gone. We need to be able to touch the joy, but not attach to it. There's a third form of dukkha, which is that because things are ceaselessly arising and passing away again, moment by moment by moment, there's something in this that is oppressive, tiring, wearying. We can see this in our daily lives. When we look at just what we need to do to keep this body-mind going. That even if we're on holidays, we still have to get up, we have to dress the body, take care of the body, go to the toilet, wash the body, um, feed the body, And if we're even on vacation, we probably had to go out and earn money to be able to do that. That there is an ongoingness to simply having a body. And we can't stop that. We can't say, okay, I'm not going to do anything more about it. You know, there's a commitment (laughs) that happens when we're born. And we have to keep going. I always think um, dishes are a sign of this relentlessness. You know, you wash the dishes, dry the dishes, put the dishes away. It seems like you just turn around and there's another stack of dishes. There, there's just this relentlessness. We really see this relentlessness in our practice. We come and we sit down and we have the best of intention to sit, to sit still, to be mindful. And we're practicing, and then an ache develops in the body. 
a pain develops. And for a while, there's an awareness of that. But let's face it, the body cannot sit in one position for the rest of your life. You know, even if we can sit a very long time, at some point, we are going to need to go to the toilet. We just have to do this. One way that I commonly see this oppressiveness come in on retreat is might wake up in the morning, there's a brightness of mind, there's a willingness to be with experience, and practicing throughout the day. Later in the day, a little bit of tiredness sets in, time to go to bed. One goes to bed, but there's this ceaseless arising and passing away. And you just want to shut the mind off, but there's no switch to do it. And there's this continual bombardment. There's another way we experience it in practice, which is a little bit more subtle. It's when there is a great sensitivity to what arises at any of the sense doors. And as these experiences arise, there can be a sense of impingement, like a sound. It's like a sense of being bombarded. You know, there's just such a sensitivity in the mind that it's registering everything in its arising and passing away. And it's ceaselessly so. And again, there's no switch to turn it off. So looking in our own experience to see if there is some sense of dukkha, you know, whether it is the obvious form where it's unpleasant experience, whether it's seeing that there is these experiences and the mind lunges at them as if there will be something in them that's substantial. And then, boom, we just see that there isn't. And experience this unsatisfactoriness. Or this ceaseless arising and passing away of experience. It's kind of interesting that as the mind touches into the scene of dukkha, there is still the tendency to personalize it. And so it can happen that as we start seeing this more and more, we do think it's because we're doing something wrong, because we're not uh, practicing in the right way, doing the right practice. I remember I was in Burma. It was my first time there. And after a few months, there was a lot of unsatisfactoriness arising. And I wrote a letter back to one of my teachers in the West, who happened to be Steve Armstrong. And I was just describing this level of dukkha, but just you know how everything was unsatisfactory, there was so much suffering, that you know there was doubt about the practice. And 
it took a long time for Steve's letter to get back to me, which was unfortunate, because he just pointed towards seeing this unsatisfactory nature and how if we can just allow the mind to be there with it, if we don't personalize it, there comes a great equanimity, a great peace, because there isn't this level of grasping, identification, of personalizing. And it becomes freeing. But it's really hard to, one, trust in that when we're in the grips of pain. You know, everything in the mind says, get me out of here. But this is where the teachings of the Buddha are so helpful. Because he was trying to help us have the courage to go against that habituated habit of mind to move away, to pull away, but instead to look, to see, to touch, to know. And out of that, out of coming closer to that, we can see it for what it is. Actually, Dukkha probably has set us in motion on our spiritual journey in some form. That in some way in our lives, we recognized this unsatisfactoriness. Know whether it came through periods where there was intense pain in our lives. Whether it was through looking at the world and seeing how much suffering there is whether it was through this relentlessness of day-to-day living and just going, what is this all about? In some way, we paused. Rather than being a victim to that suffering, we paused. And in that pause, there was probably some trace of wisdom some sense of possibility. It's actually said that um, the seeing of suffering, of dukkha, can be the proximate cause or the cause and conditions needed for the arising of faith. And so, you know, it's a powerful force to see. But it does require of us to look deeply because our habits of misperception are so strong. Our habit of denial. I had a funny experience, embarrassing experience, to see just how deep this habit of denying uh, suffering is. I was out driving my car one day, got to a shopping center, got out of my car, and I looked at my front tire, and it looked like it was flat. (laughs) The next thought in my mind was, I'll just pretend I didn't see it. You know, as if it would go away if I didn't see it. 
And that can be our way of relating to this. You see it in sitting meditation. I've done it many times when something's niggling, but trying to pretend it's not there, trying to pretend the mind is equanimous. I so appreciate what the Buddha taught about the truth of dukkha. And, you know, if he had stopped there, we would be in trouble. It would be pessimistic teachings. But that isn't what he taught. He taught the end of dukkha. Yes, this is unsatisfactory. This mind constantly wanting, probing, craving, clinging, identifying. All these experiences coming and going. Oh, it hurts sometimes. And sometimes, you know, the identification is so strong, we get ripped apart. And seeing somebody else in suffering. But there is an end. There is a way out of suffering. And it's not based on delusion. It's not based on having to get the right conditions to have a happiness that will last forever. It's based in seeing clearly. It's based in wisdom, understanding. It always intrigues me, too, how one can get comfortable within this world of dukkha. And, you know, this is when you know, we become comfortable in our stories around our suffering. Because they're known to us. It's a way of not moving into the unknown. And, you know, in some way, it's quite perverse. So we really have to examine our relationship to our experiences, how we relate to them, how we identify with them, how we get comfortable in them. It requires such an honesty to practice, such a strong desire to know truth, or we will just fall into complacency. It requires a steadfastness.
in the moments where dukkha is there, seeing for yourself what helps the mind to be present. And it's not just to see it. We really have to feel the unsatisfactoriness. It's unfortunate that we can't do it from arm's length distance. Because it's when we really know the rub, the scorching, the pain of, of the cause of dukkha or suffering, which is craving. When we deeply know that, there's the letting go. There's the seeing clearly. No, it's the, the when we, uh, by way of the three characteristics, have an insight into the unsatisfactory nature, the mind loses its attraction or compulsion to cling because that searing, scorching heat of craving is known, and there's no desire to feed it. The mind naturally turns to nibbana, the unconditioned. The seeing of the unsatisfactory nature of experience helps us to, in our lives, find compassion, find tolerance. On this first trip to Burma, you know, after this period of time that was filled with so much dukkha, I experienced a lot of anger. I experienced a lot of ill will. I saw seeds of violence in my own mind. And prior to this, I had always thought of myself as being a reasonably kind person. And then suddenly it was shocking to me what was happening. You know, I would go from just these savage judgments of what was happening around me, of people, of things, of you know, all aspects of life around me. And I would feel this brutality that I couldn't believe. And then I just recognized that this was the seed of violence, of crime, of hatred. This is what fueled wars. And here these seeds were right inside my own mind. And then when I would think of a criminal, when I would think of someone doing horrific things, I had some sense of how deep their pain was. And from that, my heart could open to them. We find that when we see deeply into suffering, 
we have a lot more patience with people who are doing harmful things or don't even know that they're doing harmful things, people in ignorance. But there's more understanding in our own minds of what that feels like. We find that seeing into the truth of dukkha, there is no place for pride or conceit. It is so humbling. So the levels we experience of dukkha will vary, sometimes very obvious, sometimes much more subtle. The uneasiness, the impingement on the sense doors, looking, allowing the mind to be present, having the courageousness of mind to stay with the experience. Because the understanding of what's happening here can lead to freedom. When I watch the news and I see you know, that there can be such a massive layer of suffering happening in the world, and that there are many people that just have to deal with finding their next meal, just have to deal with staying warm, just have to deal with trying to stay afloat with the suffering. And then I realize that in being here practicing, we have this opportunity to look into the root of suffering, to really see what's underlying this suffering. It, to me, brings a great value and importance to what we're doing here. And sometimes we lose track of that in the midst of a retreat. But even you know, just in being with how we relate to our knee pain, how we relate to fear, how we relate to aversion, how we relate to joy. It can be touching into the the causes of suffering. And it's really through our own understanding that there's any chance that we can help the world. That we can, you know, through our own understanding, then help others to see why there is such a state of distress, dis-ease, in the world. I'd like to share a teaching from Ajahn Buddhadasa. 
He was a Thai forest master. He said, Do realize that this business of the path and the walking of it is no small matter, no joke. On the contrary, it is the most vital matter of all. It is the task for a human being. It is a job to be done with all the intelligence and ability a human being can muster. Don't waver for an instant, not for a split second. In a single instant, one may go astray from the path. If the mind is not on the lookout at every moment, there is a danger of its running off the path and even falling into the lower realms. It behooves each of us, each one of us, to reflect on the dangers of this kind of lapse and resolve to maintain clear and unobscured insight into the transient unsatisfactoriness and non-selfhood of every single thing about oneself. If one's every action, word, and thought will then be in keeping with that insight, there is no way it can lapse and give rise to some kind of suffering. That if we're looking towards truth in any moment, it's these three characteristics that we're looking towards to see into the transient nature, to see the unsatisfactoriness, and to see the insubstantial nature of it. And this is what will lead to the end of suffering. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know 
the end of suffering. Closing with the chanting of the sharing of blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death. May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.